0: Well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, Turn uh, to. I've got everybody on. Uh, so uh, if I start hearing some bizarre sounds, I'm gonna moot everybody. But we're gonna keep everybody on. Keep everybody. And if you want to uh, and, uh, participate, uh, you feel free to do so. And uh, hopefully, I'll be able to see you. And, uh, we'll go. But we're in First Peter, and uh, we're looking at the first imperative in Peter, the first um uh, commandment to obey and what he's doing, if you remember, is that as the Holy Spirit leads him, he don't teaching
1: understand. us how to hey,
0: endure trials. He's, down there, yeah. he's teaching us to endure persecution. And he's doing that through a way in which you or you or I may not have thought to do it, but he's teaching us that the way through trials is not to avoid them, but is to obedient, to be obedient through them and let the trials accomplish their purposes in our lives as God sends them and allows them uh, for his glory to build us up in his faith and to grow us in the greater conformity and dependence on his son, Jesus Christ. We saw last week, we started this as I'm outlining this according to these imperatives. We saw the first imperative uh, in verse 13, and that imperative was to gird up the loins of your mind. When we talked about that it literally means to loose, to uh, tighten up the loose ends in your thinking and it was an encouragement not to fret over the world or be focused on the world and the waves and the storms of the world but to set our hearts and our minds uh, as Jesus did the, word, uh, the, the ultimate reason why he came and for us and for us that Yes. Focus our laser-like attention on who we yeah. are in Christ, yeah. and uh, because of what He's done in our lives. And so that's what it means to gird up the loins, to persevere in our thinking, to, to, to already have made a moral decision about things that come up in our life. And we talked about that in good detail. And then what the Peter does as an untrained fisherman, uh, as he is borne along by the Holy Spirit, he teaches us that. One of the ways that we get through the trials of obedience and through obedience is that we would remember the blessings. Uh, and then we talked about uh, in verse 3, if you look at chapter 1, we talked about the salvation that is of God and of the Godhead. We talked about uh, the foreordination and the predestination of the Father. We talked about the obedience death on the cross of our son, of our Savior, and then we talked about the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, God had come in to secure our salvation, and we talked about the fact that we are elect, that we are just pilgrims passing through, and then we looked at the blessings uh, of living hope. We talked about that in good detail, and then we uh, started talking about the inheritance, which is this transfer of possession from one generation to the next, is the father bestows all of the inheritance on his son. And because we are co-heirs with Christ, we are partakers of that inheritance. We are adopted into the family, and now we have all the rights and privileges of sons. If you can fathom that, that we are no longer just slaves, we're no longer friends, but we are uh, fellow heirs with Christ, and we are brothers with Jesus Christ. And we talked about the great inheritance that is ours. Uh, we were we were finishing in verse four. We talked the inheritance is incorruptible. Uh, we talked about the inheritance is undefiled. We talked that there's no germ of sin in it. Uh, there's nothing that taints it. Uh, and then I, it doesn't fade away. As we closed last week, we were. We were focusing on the reservation we had in heaven. Part of our inheritance is it in is reserved. reserve. you guys ever uh, had to be kicked out of a reservation? You had a reser- reservation in a, in a in a restaurant, or you had uh, some earnest money down on a on a house, and then something happened in life uh, higher up than you gave them a little more money, and you lost your reservation, or however you lost your reservation just want to encourage you that our reservations in heaven cannot be canceled. They cannot be revoked. There's no one's going to come along and take my reservation from us. We're not going to be and go to glory. And I'm sorry, I don't have your reservation, Mr. Martin, but it is there. It has been written before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. We (coughs) are secure in glory. uh, they will be there when our time comes. As Donovan's time came this week, uh, when he met face-to-face with his Savior, that reservation was kept, and we trust that he is in glory. So all of us, our reservations will be there. There will be no disqualifications or forgetting or whatever else happens. It is reserved. And then we talked about that that res- inheritance is kept. Uh, by the uh, power of God in verse 5, through faith, and we talked about that word kept is a military term, and it means it's garrison. It is protected by Lord God Almighty himself, the host of the armies, and that is kept through the means of faith that He has given us, and it is secured for us. And it will be revealed one day in glory when we see Jesus Christ. The second time. So everybody remember sort of where we are, uh, in this study. And now we're going to see a great transition occur. And let me read, uh, verse, uh, chapter one, verse six through 13. And then we will, uh, commence this today about one of the major themes, the major theme of the book. And that's trials. So if you look with me on, uh, first Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, I'm going to read this and we'll discuss uh, trials today. Uh, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold and perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revealing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet you believe, you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, which is ultimately the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired, they've searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what matter of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Then it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revealing of Jesus Christ. So we saw that, and now we're we'll to look at uh, this uh, uh, concept of trials, this concept of tribulation, this concre- uh, concept of suffering. And I think to do it correctly, in my way of thinking, we need to understand there are two or three words that are very similar, that are completely different from each other. And I want to take a little time today to think about uh, three things that are similar to trials, uh, two things that are similar to trials that aren't really trials and we'll talk about them. First thing I want you to talk about, I want to talk about is temptation. Now the word temptation is very similar to the word for trials. The word in uh, in Greek for temptation is a periazo. It's a verb, and it's a word that means to test. Uh, similar to what uh, the Greek word for trial is, it means to test, but the difference, when we look at the word temptation, uh, exists in the motivation of the tester. Uh, so a temptation is a test. Don't get me wrong, but the 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 motivation of temptation is to trap. the The thinking in uh, in the Greek is the test to try to trap you. And so when we're talking about trials and we're talking about temptations, and as we look at even chastening, we're going to see they're similar but they're different. And so when we look at temptation, the primary text for that, and just turn back the book to James, we're all familiar with this uh, verses, but uh, James chapter 1, uh, read a few verses in James, and we're looking at this concept of temptation and how it differs from trials, which we'll get into in a second and develop, but temptation, it means to be tested, but the motivation behind the temptation is to track you. Uh, and to entice you to fail, to fall short of God's standards, and to disobey God, uh, and we're going to look at this in a second. But look at uh, verse 12, chapter 1 of James. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when <laughs> he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We see this concept of temptation said that it's a test, all right, but the motivation behind the test is failure and to trap us. And the and the originator of temptation, of course, is Satan, our adversary, uh the roaring lion. Scripture tells us, matter of fact, we'll get into this later, that he's a roaring lion and he wants to devour us. He wants to cause us to fail and ruin us. He wants to bring shame to the name of Christ. He wants to bring shame to our legacies, to our families. He wants to ruin as many lives as he can. So what he does is he brings these tests into our lives with the motivation of causing us to fail. And so we see that temptation, uh, the primary motivation of it is to fall and to fade. Now we can't be Flip Wilson if you remember him from the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> and so the devil made me do it. We are, uh, as we read in James, we're enticed when we're drawn away by our own lusts. And so Satan in conjunction with our already sinful heart and the depravity of our nature that is, is unregenerated as it does what it wants to do, and it does what it has to do to sin nature, what happens is we are enticed <laughs> by the world system, we're enticed by our eyes, we're enticed by our hearts, we're enticed by, by uh, the pride of our lives, <laughs> and the purpose of this testing and this temptation in conjunction with our own depravity is the causes to fail, and Satan is the instigator of it, and he is the uh, the father of it, and so we see that many times in Scripture. I want to uh, point it out to you, uh, not to have an exhaustive understanding of it, but to point out the differences. First of all, everybody knows Job, and the the, the reason why Job was written for many reasons is how we how we handle temptation and testing in our life, uh, and we know from Job, uh, and particularly I, I picked up on a few things that... You come back here. On have to go. And Job, he was saying is one of his most important books of the Old Testament. I think it's been uh, very influential in what he does as a counselor, and he always refers to the book of Job, uh, especially when he taught it, but... Uh, in his teaching on Job, and I'll quote, Satan wanted to attack God's character, and and Satan wanted to accuse God of not being worthy of being worshipped, and that he said, God, you have to be worshipped because you bless people. But if you don't bless people, uh, people aren't going to worship you. So you basically have to entice people with the carrot of blessing before they'll worship you. And so God in his providence allows Satan to try to prove his point. And what's going to happen is God is going to prove his point, that he is sovereign. And so he allows Job to be tested. He allows him to be tempted. And so Satan, uh, the goal of Satan's temptations is to prove God a liar and to show that Job's motivation just blessing he doesn't have a heart for the Lord, but he really worships the Lord and obeys God from what he's going to get out of the deal. So we see that in the in over and over. And even Job's wife says, Job, you've been suffering enough. You lost all your kids. You've lost your family. You lost your livelihood. You've had boils from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet all this time. All of your friends are abandoning you. Why don't you just curse God and die? And so Job, through grace of God, he says, Woman, can I not take good from God? And can I not take evil from God? I was born naked in this world, and I'm gonna leave naked, and he did not sin with his lips. And so we see the temptation uh, meant to be evil, meant to trap. Uh, and so we see that. Look and remember the temptation of Jesus himself. Jesus It says in Matthew chapter 4, he was sent out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And we see that the trial in the wilderness was a trial sent by God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus in the wilderness to test him. Now, that testing is not for Jesus to fail, obviously, but that testing Allows, if you'll let me, uh, let me say this, Jesus learns obedience through the testing and through the trial. It tells us in, uh, in Ephesians 2.10, if you will, I mean, Hebrews 2.10, if you go back a couple of books, that the purposes for Jesus' temptation and for his obedience as a man course, is uh to bring us to salvation and that he would bring sons to glory that's us and that and that jesus would be made complete through his mm-hmm. suffering not that jesus had any sin in him so in a sense he didn't he didn't learn to be sinless he already was but he learned uh To be a representative and a substitute for men, he had to identify as man, and he had to be representative of men. So he, mediator between God and men, he had to empathize and sympathize with men. So he is tempted in all points like we are, yet he was without sin. And so now we can come to him with full assurance of faith, because we have a high priest, that tells us in 4.15, the Hebrews, who's touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who's all points tempted like we are. So he represents us, he empathizes, and he sympathizes, and he understands us. So we have a high priest who we can go to with full assurance, because he's been there, He's gone through it, and he has come out the victor through it. And so we see this temptation. Now, in the temptation temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, he was tempted. So if you're writing these things, in our trials that God sends, that God allows, we can be tempted in the trial, right? Job was tempted in the trials that God allowed and he was tempted. And as a matter of fact, he was at times bitter. He was at times angry. He was at times speaking out of emotion and he misrepresented God in a few ways. So we see the trial and we see that we can't be tempted in the trial. Jesus was tested by God in the trial but he was also tempted and he was tempted to be presumptuous to jump off the building and let let the Father save him, let the Spirit save him. He was tempted to be selfish and turn food into into, uh, bread. He was tempted to disobey his Father and forego the cross. So he was tempted. Now, you ask yourself, can Jesus be tempted? Yes, he was tempted. He was tempted. Here's a little bit of theology for you. He was tempted externally, but he was not tempted internally. Does anybody want to gather what that means and tell me he was tempted externally, but he was not tempted internally? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Unmute yourself if you want to take a shot at that. I wanted to just
2: say, um, and, and this goes along with that, I mean, the temptation reveals the heart to me. The trials yep. reveal the heart. And so uh, with Job or with us, whoever it is, besides Jesus, it reveals that we have sin nature, that we yes. are the propensity to sin and, and to do wrong. Whereas with Christ, it reveals His perfection of character mm-hmm. and who He was. And so, to me, that—that's what I saw through that whole thing you were saying. Was the revelation of where our heart is, that we are desperately wicked, but Christ is not. Excellent. Thanks
1: for that, Sheila. Hmm, that was good.
0: He was tempted externally, but he was not tempted internally because he does not have a depraved nature, a sin nature. So uh, excellent. Anybody have any comments on on the external temptation versus the internal? Theologians call this impeccability. I don't want to blow a brain cell this early in the morning, but uh, uh, just the uh, uh, the whole concept of how could Jesus have been tempted, even though it was impossible for him to sin. And I won't uh, get into it entirely, but uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll just leave it at that. But uh, and then another guy that I want to talk about is David, man after God's own heart. David was tempted and tested in many ways. He was tempted differently than he was tempted. He was tempted when, uh, you know, that's the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. When the king should have been out fighting, it's a spring of the year, the, the ground is thawed and it's a good time for men to go out and fight. Uh, when, when David should have been fighting, he stayed home. And he let uh, his uh, kings and generals go out and fight. And what did David do? He he was lounging around on his porch, and he saw Bathsheba. And the word "saw," he didn't just take a quick glance. He saw. <laughs> and he continued to see, and he yeah. folded over in his mind. He knew that Bathsheba was a married woman, and he and he he, he, ch- he chased her. He committed adultery against her fornication and, and violated the oath of the king and the commandments, several of them. So, so David was tempted and that temptation came from the owner, as Sheila said, from his own uh, sinful heart. He, he saw and he desired, he was enticed sin, and that enticement gave way to sin and that sin gave way to death. So we see David's temptation was not from God, it was a temptation <clears throat> from his own heart And Satan he is the instigator of it, and, and, and it was designed to track David, and it did, and he paid the consequences of that the rest of his day, so we see two different things, now later, uh, earlier, David is tested by God, and that testing proves that his faith is genuine, and we'll get into that in a second. But uh, So we see temptation, the motivation behind it is to cause us to fall and to fail. God is not the author of the temptation. He never tempts anyone to fail. He never tempts anyone to fall short of his character and to sin, so he's not the author of it. But we can be Tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust. So we see temptation and the differences. Now let's look at another one as we get as we go, I guess work up to this. Anybody have any comments about temptation? Uh unmute yourself and feel free to comment uh, before we leave temptation. Uh second thing is chastening. Now chastening is a punishment and it's a specific consequence for specific sin in your life. And uh, the primary verse on chastening, as you all know, as students of the Word, one of the great benefits and privileges we have as teachers is to see our very astute students, as they know this probably better than than I do, but uh, the, the, the foundation for this chastening concept which is very similar to temptation and trials, is in Hebrews 12. And we see this in verse uh, verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 5, as we look at chastening, which is specific consequence and punishment for specific sin in our life. Verse 5, chapter 12, Hebrews, and you have forgotten... The exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For the Lord loves whom he chastens and scourges the sons that he receives. And if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there who father doesn't chasten? But if you were out without chasing chastening, of which all have become partakers and you are illegitimate and you're not really a son. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who correct us and we pay them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they for a few days chasten us as it seemed best to them. But God chastens us for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, chastening isn't joyful, amen to that, but it's painful. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So we see chastening is specific to God's children. It is a mark that we are His children. It is an evidence that God loves us, and it is purposeful for restoration. And so we see chastening uh, has a role uh, in our lives. Remember I, met, I mentioned David earlier through the temptation. Well, God has an evidence that David is one of his severely chastens David. And he rebukes him not to uh, ruin David, but to bring David back to relationship with Jesus Christ. And he and he chastens him. You can read about the Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and you can read about how God chastens David. Another one that's less known is, remember when David numbers the people. It's toward the end of his ministry. It's found in 2 Samuel 24, and again it's found in First Chronicles 21, but David numbers the people. In First Chronicles 21, which is... God's view on things. The scripture tells us that, that uh, Satan brings it into David's heart to nu- to number the people. Now, we don't know all the specifics of that, but it is a prideful thing for David, probably. And it is, I'm in control, look at my army. And so he numbers the people. And the consequence of this is grievous. What happens as a consequence is a chastening uh, for David for his pride as he was tempted by Satan to do this, he yielded to that. What was the consequence of David Chase numbering the people? Do you remember that? And, and you gasp at him. It. It's like, Father, isn't this a little harsh? But what happens? Oh,
1: he had to choose, he had to choose, uh, Uh, Didn't he have to choose from three things that would happen? Three
0: choices he had to make from 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a second. Uh, God gives him three options in his mercy uh, to choose. The option is not to not be chastened. Uh, The the sin has been committed. There has to be a consequence to the sin because of the sickness. But if you look at 2 Samuel 24, uh, through a prophet, he says, I'm going to give you three options. And look at verse 13, uh, chapter 24, second Samuel. So Gad, who's the prophet, said, you got three options. You can go for seven years of famine. Uh, you can run from your enemies for three years or, uh, there'll be three days of plague in the land. And so David says, I'm going to follow the mercies of God and I'm going to, uh, Uh, I'm in distress. I'm grieved by this chastening. But he says, I'm going to follow the mercies of God. And, uh, and says, I don't want to fall into the hands of men. I'm going to trust Father to know best. So God sends a plague and 70,000. Yes, that's right. 70,000 men died because of this chastening of the Lord that God sends upon. And that is. That seems very severe to us, doesn't it? Yes. But uh, he is chastened for his sin. And the consequences is a learned principle to all of us that our sin, we don't sin in a vacuum. And the consequences that we suffer from affect other people. I've told you many times that that, that, that Satan would love to ruin Terry in. And the reason he would love to ruin Terry ends is because that would have a shameful effect on thousands of people, not just in our church, but around the world as he's ministering, and that would have a, a earthquake effect, and that's what he wants to do. And so he loves to chase and and if by God's grace Terry did fall, that would be a great victory for Satan and his forces because the chastening that Terry would feel from that and experience would affect all of us, right? And so that is what he's out to do. That's what he did in David's life. And our chastening, our sin isn't in a vacuum, but it affects lots of folks. And it brings shame to the Lord, so we need to be aware of the schemes of the devil. So we see that this this chastening... Is because he loves us. It's evidence that we're his. Now let's get to the main focus here, and I hope I haven't uh, rambled too long. I still got some time uh, in Verse 6. Let's look at trials. Uh, verse 6. Uh, what he does and what, what the Holy Spirit does many times in Scripture, uh, when he gives us the theological point and discussion, uh in verse six, look at he says, In this you greatly rejoice. Before he drops us on with this bombshell reality of trials, again, cause he he says, I want you to reflect on the blessings. This is what he does. Paul, uh, Peter is a minister of remembrance. Uh, one of his tasks in Second Peter is to bring you to remembrance. So one more time before he lays on us the realities of life, he says. In this you greatly rejoice. Remember what we just talked about, okay? The blessings, the inheritance, all these things. Now to get you with reality. Christianity has never escaped from reality, is it? It is reality, but it is God working in us through reality. So uh, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Look what he says. So if you're writing these things down, so we got some characteristics of God. And there's some, I will hear and they're very interesting. In this you greatly rejoice, though now. First characteristic of, of trials is it is a present-day reality. Trials are present-day realities. Jesus said in John 16:33, in this world you will have tribulation. It's not my it's may, it's may, it's not maybe, it's will have execution. And in that context, he's telling his disciples, I'm about to go away. I'm leaving you my peace. That in my peace, because you've been reconciled to the Father through the work that I'm about to accomplish on the cross, and for us, as we apply that to us, we can have the peace <laughs> in the... Suffering and in the trials, so we understand that, uh, as as Peter says, though now, now we have trials, now we will have trials, now we are in trials. Mm-hmm. As I always, say if you're not in a trial now, just wait because tomorrow <laughs> you. Know. Yeah, that's right. So in trials, it says though now present reality of trials is that they will happen. They are unavoidable. We live in a fallen world and the consequences of a fallen world is that we will have trials. And we are in this world, no pilgrims passing through it, but we're going to have trials and it is good for us to have trials. So we see this reality uh, of trials. Uh, uh, so that's one thing. Number two, and this is a uh, something that once you get, a, get through it, you can look back. But look at what he says here. Though now for a little while. Remember the first, you probably don't, and I would be shocked if you did. The first little meditation I did eight weeks ago was perspective. And the perspective is trials, we're in now, that little phrase, a prepositional phrase, I, I, I think, uh, uh, Pamela wants to correct me. She's an English teacher on there. For a little while, I believe that's a preposition it modifies the trials and it's sort of a time length. It says, we're in them now, but they're for a little while. We need to have perspective. Uh, remember when I told the home group, you know, uh, you know, we are, we need to have focus on the e- eternal, not the, uh, not the the present day situation, and and I and I had everybody do a little test. And how long was Israel in the wilderness, guys that are with me? Unmute and tell us the answer.
2: Forty years.
0: Forty years. Forty years. How long were they in captivity in Babylon? Mm-hmm. Seventy. Seventy. Years. How long were they in 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 uh? In a captivity in Egypt?
1: 400
0: 400 years. How long were they without a nation before they became a nation again and Jerusalem became the capital? 2,000 years. So let's have a little perspective here if you look at the nation of Israel. 40, 70, 400, 2,000. We've been in coronavirus for two months. Perspectives. Trials are a little while. And they are working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory, right? If you look at Second Corinthians, I use this verse. It's a verse we've done in our class before. It is a helpful verse, and it gives us perspective and as we go through the trials, we need to understand, set our minds on Him. This is part of girding up your loins and persevering through the trials. Perspective. Chapter 2, uh, chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We don't lose heart. Perspective. It's a little while. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed every day. Light affliction, underlying light, compared to what we could be going through and what others have gone through. We as a church in 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 America have no clue what affliction and trials mean. We are a microwave, gotta have it now. If we cut a finger, if we have a a a paper cut, we whine and complain. But brothers and sisters are dying for the faith. They are suffering for the gospel. This isn't a trial of, of our faith. This is a safety issue, but it's not a suffering for our faith. We're all in this together, not because we're Christian, because this is just, uh, this is just a trial of the whole earth. But look at this. It's for our light, which is, which is for a moment. But we got to keep in perspective. It's working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. We shouldn't look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things that aren't seen. And the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that aren't seen are eternal. So as Peter says for a little while, this reality of present day, keep it in perspective. Okay? Keep it in perspective. So we see that. Any comments about that? About perspective about our views versus the world's views, and in our lukewarm Christianity versus the, the sardest church of the world, and from our early churches, and <coughs> the Chinese churches, the Korean churches, the, the African churches, we don't have a clue. Keep it in perspective. Uh, we're whiners, right? I'm a whiner. We're whiners. Keep it in perspective. Look at the next thing. These characteristics, it's it's, it's reality. It's for a little while. Look at this. If need be. That means a lot. God allows and God sends trials when they're necessary for your development as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay? He allows it, and he sends them specifically to you because you need it at that particular time. And once you come to that conclusion, and you can say with James, count it all joy, because you understand that this is allowed and sent by God, and you need it, okay? You need it. Because there's something in your life that God is teaching and training and shaping you like Christ. So this trial is needful to you. Does that blow your mind? It's needful for you. And there are example after example in Scripture. And I just want to give you two of my favorite examples. And I'm going to watch the time. Elijah. Do you understand Elijah? And usually in my life, and you may say, yes, no, you don't agree, you don't agree, that's okay. Uh, but in my life, when I have had a mountaintop experience, when I have been given a new opportunity or obligation, and I am going to press forward and trust the Lord in it, usually it is then that God sends trials in my life. Agree, disagree. Elijah, in 2 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18, you remember the prophet Baals, 450 prophets. Elijah pulls this test. He says, if your your gods are real, let's build this big altar. Let's pour water on it. And if your gods are real, why don't your gods send fire and burn up this altar? And the bales are going, okay, they're cutting themselves. They're praying to their gods, and nothing happens. And then Elijah says, he laughs at them, he mocks them. He says, maybe your gods are on a trip. Maybe your gods are busy. Maybe your gods are actually going to the bathroom. And he just sarcastically mocks them, okay? And so, and then he says, I'm going to call out to Jehovah, the one true God, and he does, and God sends the fire, and it burns up not only the sacrifice of the altar, but it burns up all the water around it. So Elijah has a mountaintop experience, okay? So like I said, he sends the trials when he needs it. What does Elijah do the next day? And it's shocking. He's afraid of Jezebel, a woman, and that in those days was a grievous thing, uh, the way they thought of women. So he's afraid of Jezebel, and Jezebel. he runs this mountaintop experience that should have given him all the confidence in the world in in Yahweh, and that he is the real God. The next day, he's afraid of Jezebel. He runs a hundred miles without stopping, and he holes up in a cave. And he says, woe is me, I'm the only one left, I'm the only prophet, nobody else is around. God so says, get out of that cave, realize this trial is for your benefit so you'll see, not that I just proved myself with the bales a day ago, but I am proving to you, you don't need to have self-pity You don't need to have a a self-focused party. You need to trust me. And he speaks to him in a still small voice. So the trial came to Elijah when Elijah needed it. And as I said in my life, he sends trials to me after I've had a mountaintop experience, after I've had a new role or opportunity. Anybody agree or disagree with that? when God has sent you trials when you needed them in your life? Anybody have any comments about that? If you do, unmute yourself and speak. Has God sent trials in your life when you needed them? Yes or no? Yes. What did he teach you during those trials? Melanie's the only honest one this morning. <laughs> you needed it. We yep. need it. Our natural tendencies are to do what? If we didn't have any trials in our life, what would we be like? We
1: would be sinning all the time.
0: We would be Bumped simple, up with pride.
1: soft,
0: no. mm-hmm. prideful, arrogant, unable to live with us Christian.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Trials toughen us up. Trials point us to Christ. Trials teach us lessons, and as we'll get into this in a second, trials prove to us that the faith within us is real. These trials don't prove to God anything, because God is the author of the faith, the giver of the faith, and he knows our hearts, right? The trials teach us that the faith that we believe and trust is real, and it's of God. So he sends the trials when we need them, when we're getting complacent, when we're getting lukewarm, when we're getting self-absorbed and self-focused, when we are pity partying or whatever we're doing. God sends the trials in your life as you need it for a specific time for his glory. Are you going through a trial right now? And I'm not talking about COVID. Are you going through the trial right now? Is it a crisis of trust? Is it a crisis of anxiety? Is it a crisis of self-dependence or dependence upon God? God is sending it for his glory, not to trap you, but to encourage you in his faith. So be thankful. Be joyful. Because it is purposeful, it is evidence that you are His, and it will ultimately, when you get on the other side of it, you're going to look back and say, thank you for the trial because it taught me blank. Are you going through that right now? I hope you are. And I say that, not tongue-in-cheek, but I say that because it's good for you. It's needed by you. Okay? Okay? Comments or questions?
1: Uh, Yeah, Don, I just have one comment. Um, You know, I've been going through um, some trials at work. And one of the things that Terry shared with me that really helped me a lot was that sometimes God sends us these trials to show us in ways that we have grown. Because, you know, I was saying to him in the past, this is how I would have responded. But but because of what Christ had done for me, I was be able, I was able to respond more Christ-like, and that really opened a new way of thinking for me. That there are sometimes that there are trials there in which He shows us how He has grown us and drawn us to Him, and that was such a blessing, and I just rejoiced in that. So excellent,
0: excellent, very good. Anybody other comments on trials? How? How it's caused you to reflect upon God's progress in you? Or is it teaching you something about where you need to be? Any comments? The next thing, we've seen the present-day reality. We've seen a little while. We've seen that they are sent when they're needed. Uh, and we've seen, uh, oh, another one, uh, Paul. Remember why Paul got a trial sent to him? Uh, It tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 that so that I wasn't puffed up with the abundance of revelation that I was given. No one was revealed more about the mystery of the Godhead than Paul. He was caught up into the third heaven for 14 days, and he was shown unutterable things, okay? And so... This is a mountaintop experience that is not matched by any one of us on this zoom chat room. Okay. He saw things, he experienced things. He was told things that we will be seen shown one day on the other side of glory. But Paul was shown these things. And so the natural tendency of even Paul is to be huffed up. Wow. I've arrived. Look what God has done and shown me. And so he needed this trial. What was this trial? Thorn in the Second Corinthians 12, 7, a thorn in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And this thorn was needed at this particular time after this mountaintop experience to, to create in Paul humility and total dependence upon the sufficiency of God's grace, right? And so. So that he is would know. This sends this trial to buffet Paul. Paul asked for it to be removed three times. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So he sent the trial when Paul needed it for the reason that I just mentioned. Another reiteration of what Melanie said of whatever one of you thought the purpose of the trial. Now, we see about the trials, and let's not doubt this. You have been grieved. Trials, that word distr- is distress. Trials distress us. And as Sheila has said, trials distress us. And as Job was taught, reflect us and cause us to think about what's in our hearts, right? Go <laughs> through the trials tempted to and succumbed to bitterness and anger and said some things about God. He later resented and and repented for these distressful things stress us and really show what's in our hearts. Right? So these trials are distressful. Don't make any doubt about it. They have to be to get our attention and to cause us to reflect Mm -hmm. On the reason for, and the purposes in them. So if they were pleasant, if they were a trip to Disneyland, they would not cause the effect yeah. they need to cause. The chastening has to be hard and painful because we are, by nature, stubborn <laughs> and stiff-necked and very difficult and belligerent. Right? So has to get our attention as a loving father through painful, distressful trials. And he does that because he's faithful. Notice what else? If you're going along here, various trials. These trials vary. And they are they sent are sent for specific reasons. Uh, just from examples. Your trial may vary. It may be relational. And you can go throughout the scripture. Remember David's relational trials, he had a relationship issue issue with Saul. Those trials sent by God taught taught David to forgive, taught David to be a man after God's own heart. As Saul chased him relentlessly and, and sought to murder him, This taught David the mercies of his father. And later, David uses these lessons he's learned from Saul in this relationship issue. And later, he's able to show mercy to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, a cripple boy that David adopts, basically, into his family and feeds from his table. So that trial, this relationship trial, that David had with Saul mm-hmm. taught David to be abundantly merciful to Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. You get that? Uh, Paul and Barnabas. <clears throat> I didn't know they had issues. Yes, they did. Mm-hmm. Paul and Barnabas had a ruckus, a a challenge to their relationship. It's a trial, and they <clears throat> and they had a disagreement over who. Mm-hmm. Mark Mark Paul thought Mark abandoned them in the ministry Paul, Barnabas said no and and Barnabas as the gift of encouragement that he had he took Mark and Mark was useful Mark is the writer of the gospel of Mark and Mark and Paul were later reconciled and Paul said Mark is useful to me So there's a relationship, there was a trial in the relationship, and God took that trial in the relationship and worked his work in Paul and even Barnabas's heart. So we see that. Did Peter and Paul have a rift? Did they have a trial in their relationship? I'm going to be very excited if you know the answer to this one. What was their relationship rift, this trial, and what was the... Positive effects of this. Unmute yourself and speak out and, and show the pastor you've read this and
2: know that. Well, I think the, the rift was between uh, that Peter was going back to serving the Jews and treating them better and that he was the Gentiles.
0: That's right. Very good. You get a gold star, Sister Sheila, and I'm shocked that you know this. Others knew this. I'm being sarcastic, of course. <laughs> this relationship tiff uh, uh, was a strain on their relationship at first. It was purposeful. It's when they needed it. Was for a little while. It was a grievous to Paul and a grievous to Peter, but it really uh, cemented their roles. Paul is the apostle for the Gentiles. Peter to the Jews, and we see. The, cause, the crossover effect, the Gentiles were very, very uh, dear to Peter's heart as were <clears> the Jews <throat> the Paul's heart. So we see this, uh, uh, and I could go on and on. What about the relationship with Moses and, and Aaron and Miriam? Did they have a trial in their relationship? <laughs> yes, and this trial was on... Leadership, oh, oh, leadership. Is, is in jealousy and envies and, and bitterness, and uh, through this trial, it was grievous, and and Miriam had leprosy for we don't know how long, but it was a it was a relationship was a trial that strengthened both of them, mm-hmm. and we don't see any record of Aaron or Miriam questioning God's leadership of Moses at that particular time, so it worked. And it built all three of them up, and it confirmed Moses as the leader of Israel. Uh, it could be a monetary trial. It could be a health trial. Here's another one of Paul. Did Paul have a health trial? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The thorn in his side. The thorn in his side but something other than that. He mentions this to the Galatians. He says, see what large letters I have written to you in. And he said, and you would have, if it would have been possible, given me your very eyes. So some scholars think Paul had an eye issue, possibly malaria. We don't know. But Paul had health issues. Did Timothy have health issues? Yes. Yes, he did. He had stomach problems. Timothy was a little timid. He was young. And Paul said, also. drink a little wine for your infirmities. He's not teaching it's okay to drink wine. That's another lesson. But he basically said, <laughs> these health issues or trials that are teaching you something and teaching you boldness and teaching you trust in me. And so we see that. Hey, here's another one, and I'm going to be very excited if you know this one. Hezekiah. Did Hezekiah have health issues? Yes. Yes, he did. Matter of fact, God said, you're going to die. Hezekiah fell on his face and says, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And what did God do? Fifteen more years. Fifteen more years. And guess what? you got to be careful what you pray for because the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life, for his worst. Hezekiah, in the province of God, had a child, and that child's name was Manasseh. Manasseh was the most godless king who ever ruled in Judah, and Hezekiah, in these last 15 years, became proud, and he showed Babylon, the king of Babylon, all of his stuff in his pride and his arrogance So. Be careful what you wish for, be careful what you pray for, cause God will around in your life. But this is a situation where these trials led to some problems, ultimately they were resolved obviously, but uh, we see this. And, uh, I love this, what it says here, I don't love it, but I, it says, uh, uh, it says the trials, various trials, being much more precious than gold that perishes, it is tested by fire. The last characteristic of, of this trials, and I want you to write fire. The word is is uh pyroses and it's the word we get pyromaniac from. It's and this fire is painful and this fire is burning pain. So these trials which are purposeful what did he say? are me? grievous, and they are painful. And they basically, what trials do is they burn off the dross in our lives. And they harden us as diamonds are hardened. And they cause us to shine and bear forth and grow right? in grace. Trials, they prove the authenticity and the genuineness of our faith to us. When Abraham was, was trial and when Abraham was tempted and tested in Genesis 22, what was the consequence of Abraham when he put his son Isaac on that altar and he would have killed his son Isaac? What does Hebrews say this trial it 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 solidified this progress of faith in Abraham's life. What does it say in Hebrews? Why was he about to kill his only son? Because he believed what?
2: That God would raise God. him from the
0: dead. He believed ultimately that God would raise him from the dead. So we see Abraham, who has been has, has seen God evolve his faith through obedience and through trials, you go from a man that lies about his wife, who who is afraid of these kings, afraid of his enemies, a man who would not hesitate to kill his only son, whom the promises were made to him. And he has come to this conclusion as God has grown him in faith through trials and through obedience, that if I kill my son, God's able to raise him up. And that's what trials do in our lives. That's what trials do in our lives. So we see that as I close this, uh, the reason why the trials come is for the genuineness of our faith to be proved to us my God. He already knows. And then look at verse, uh,
1: verse
0: 7. Trials are designed, and if you don't get anything else, get this. though they're tested by fire, that these trials may do what? These trials are meant to elicit praise to God. These trials are designed to honor God. These trials are designed to glorify God. They are found to praise, honor and glorify God at the revealing of Jesus Christ, right? And these trials are made in our lives to teach us endurance. And as we get into next week, we're going to talk about endurance. And endurance is the evidence of real faith. When we persevere to the end, that is the evidence that the faith is of God. Because he's going to finish what he's began in each one of them. So these trials, guys, we count it all joy because it gives us perspective and it trains us and it teaches us. But ultimately, these trials praise God, they honor God, they glorify God, and they bring endurance in our lives. Okay. I didn't have time to finish, but I want to. I want to end with this. Uh, just uh encouragement in your life. And uh, I want to read from uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. She is 70 years old, and she has been in a wheelchair as a paraplegic for 53 years. At the age of 17, her and her sister were swimming in Chesapeake Bay, and she dove into a shallow water And she had her severed, and her spinal cord severed. And she's a quadriplegic. She's been in a wheelchair for 53 years. She cannot go to the bathroom by herself. She cannot get up. She must be picked up. She must be carried. This dear woman has had cancer. This dear woman is a prolific author. She sings. She has albums. She's encouraged millions of people. She has wheelchair ministries. And I joke with my wife all the time. I hope I'm not standing next to her in the beam of seat judgment. <laughs> but this is Johnny Erickson Todd. Everybody knows her. I'm not she's in church of California. Does she go to MacArthur's church? I Terry may know that. But uh let me just listen to read you what she says as we conclude this on trial. And I just want you to read this and, and I want you to reflect on how you handle trial. Don't act like Elijah did at times, but understand, count it joy, and be thankful for the trials. Let me read from this dear woman. Uh, not too lengthy, but it'll take a minute. In the worst of times, Christians could and should be at their best. I think we are at best when we remain hopeful. I think we're at our best when we are confident in God and his hold on the future and that we are prayerful and we have expectancy in our life. Now, can you think of this woman 53 years in a wheelchair? She says this. Could you say this? I'm a big believer that God permits what he hates to accomplish things that he loves. That has been my mantra for 53 years in this wheelchair. God permits what he hates, this difficult, paralyzing injury in my life to accomplish something that he loves. And get this, and that is my course. This injury has changed my heart and has brought me closer walk with my God.
1: Does
0: that just make your head explode? Perspective. <laughs> Johnny Erickson Tata in a wheelchair for 53 years. She says at the end she counts it all joy and she says it has changed my heart and it has brought me to a closer walk with my Savior Jesus Christ. Does that put it in perspective to us? I hope it does. God loves us. He sends these things because we need them. They're necessary. But it is for his glory, for his praise, for his honor. And we're going to look back one day and say thank you. Thank you for what you were working in us. It was difficult. It was bitter, perhaps. But it showed me my heart. And it showed me who you are and where you want me to be and who I am in you. So uh, I just want to conclude with that. Anybody have anything to offer or add? Uh, Unmute yourself and speak. Or forever hold your peace. Anybody have anything they want to offer or add before I close us in prayer? Has this encouraged you, discouraged you? Any feedback?
2: Very encouraging.
0: Do you want me to be fired as a Sunday school teacher? You just make sure you tell Terry that. (laughs) Any comments? I hope you've benefited from this God's word. Uh, Let me pray, and uh, we'll be finished. Thank you, Father, for the trials. Give us grace to count them all joy, knowing that they are needful, they are temporary, that they are grievous, yes, but they honor and praise you, and they prove the genuineness of your faith in each one of us. Cause us to endure the trials, work your work in us, conform us to the image of your Son, and I praise you that you give us the ability to endure the trials. And I thank you for your faithfulness and chastening us. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to endure. Help us to learn these valuable lessons. You're the potter, and you are shaping each one of us individually for your glory, and you are working your work in each one of us for the ultimate reason that we are going to do the works you've ordained us to do and you are working that in us thank you in advance bless these dear people hold on to them cause them to uh cause your face to shine upon them and bless them and grow in your grace and i pray these things in the strong name of your risen son